from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Good morning, friends. Peace be with you. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. I wanted to begin uh, by reading a letter to you. It starts like this. I've been waiting to write to you, but I guess I didn't really want to face reality. I never do, so this is why I take drugs. Reality frightens me and paranoids me. True, I have a lot of money, being a beetle, been all around the world, but basically I'm afraid to face the problems of life. As the song we wrote, Paul and Me, money can't buy me love, it's true. The point is that I want happiness. I don't want to keep up with drugs. Explain to me what Christianity can do for me. Is it phony? Can he love me? I want out of hell. Sincerely, John. P.S. I am, I hate to say it, under the influence of pills now. I can't stop. I only wish I could thank you for caring. Eight years before John Lennon wrote that letter to a Christian evangelist, he wrote these lyrics to a famous song. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help, right? What John Lennon wrote in that letter, what he wrote in that song, wasn't unique to John Lennon. We all want happiness, and we all need help finding it. This is the story of Adam and Eve, and it's the story of every human since Genesis 3. Before sin entered the world, Christians believe Adam and Eve enjoyed, enjoyed perfect goodness, perfect bliss, perfect happiness in God's presence. But it wasn't long, uh, page three, basically, maybe page two, depending on how big your font is, uh, before the lie of the serpent in the garden was heard and believed. And the lie was that God couldn't be trusted. He's not a good father. He doesn't want you to be happy. And when they believed that lie, they bought into it, that God just wants to control you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's not out for your good. When they believed that lie and they grasped for happiness apart from their creator, what they got instead was spiritual death, spiritual shame, and separation from God. But God doesn't give up on them. Amen? God doesn't give up on them. He could have scrapped them and started over. It's only page two, right? <laughs> but he didn't. He goes looking for them in the garden. He pursues them, not to punish them, but to heal them. And the Bible paints the picture like this. It says in Jeremiah chapter two, God says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own wells, 
broken wells that can hold no water. But the gospel is the good news that God pursues wayward children. And he invites us to a life of joy and happiness and satisfaction forever. Amen? That's the good news. It wouldn't be good news if it didn't include those things. Does God want me to be happy is our question this morning. I think you know the answer. God wants you to be happy. So let me pray for us real quick and then we'll dig in. Father, there is so much noise, white noise um, in the world that would distract us um, from the reality that you are a good father, Um, that you live in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit. The love that you experience and have experienced for all eternity is the love that you invite us into. Um, the happiness that you have, the contented satisfaction that you have in it of yourself, you invite us into that as wayward and as wicked um, as we are. We're grateful for your grace that you've given to us in your son, Jesus, that you've given to us through your spirit in the Bible, which is your word. I pray that we would believe it this morning, that we would hold on to it, uh, that we would cherish it, that we would enjoy it. Uh, and experience life to the fullest, experience happiness as you would have us. It's in Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen. In her book, uh, America the Anxious, Why Our Search for Happiness is Driving Us Crazy and How to Find It for Real, what a subtitle, (laughs) Ruth Whitman writes this. She says, America is obsessed with happiness. She's a Brit, by the way, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. She says, America is obsessed with happiness and it's making us miserable. The more conversations I have about happiness and the more I absorb the idea that there's a glittering happily ever after out there for the taking, the more I start to overthink the whole thing, compulsively monitoring how I am feeling and hyperparenting my emotions. Am I happy right at this moment? What about now? What about now? Am I happy enough? As happy as everybody else? What about Megan? Is she happier than me? She looks happier than me. What is she doing that I'm not doing? Maybe I should take up yoga. The whole process starts to become painfully, comically neurotic. Reaching the goal of capital H happiness is so elusive and hard to define, it's impossible to pinpoint when it's been reached. A recipe for anxiety. That's why she calls it America the Anxious. She goes on to highlight what research has concluded that Americans as a whole invest more time and money and emotional energy into the explicit pursuit of happiness than any other nation ever. But is all this effort and investment paying off? She's writing, is this great American search for happiness actually working? The answer appears to be no. She writes, according to Gallup's 2014 Positive Experience Index, America ranked at an underwhelming 25th in the world, two places behind Rwanda. For all the effort that Americans are putting into hunting down happiness, they are not actually getting any happier. In fact, they are more anxious and depressed than ever. The pursuit of happiness is exhausting, she writes, and it's literally killing us. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of our favorites here, wrote these words. He said, all men know that the true good is happiness, and all men seek it, but for the most part by wrong roots. Like a drunk man who knows he has a house, but can't find his way home. 
That's a good image, isn't it? We all search for happiness because we're all homesick for Eden. We know intuitively deep down that we've wandered, but we don't know how to get back. We don't know how to return. And so God gives us grace here in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote 600 years before Jesus. And this particular chapter is the voice of a foretold servant who would be used by God to bring healing and restoration and salvation uh, to the whole world. And Jesus understood these verses to be about himself. And it means that this invitation is actually the invitation of Christ. He quotes this chapter over and over and over again in the New Testament, which means it's an invitation for us to ask ourselves, who is this Jesus? And why did he do what he did? If you're a Christian, these questions define everything about you. Who is Jesus and why, why did he do what he did? You know the answers to those questions, and it should define the way you live every day. But if you're not sure what you believe, or if you're not sure that you believe what Christians believe, if you have an allergy sort of to the teachings of Jesus or some of the, some of the uh, issues associated with Christianity, this call to consider Jesus is for you too. Because some of those assumptions and some of those allergies are actually probably sabotaging um, your ability to respond to Jesus as he is your ability to participate and to benefit from the forgiveness and the joy and the satisfaction and the feasting that's offered in Isaiah 55. And so this invitation is for all of us. And right off the bat, we see that. Um, the servant implores everybody who's reading this to enter into relationship with God, a relationship that gives what? Verse three, eternal life. He says, come, experience everlasting life and so in these verses the servant in Isaiah he's evangelizing and he's not ashamed about it at all he's sharing the good news that God through his servant is going to one day make everything right again he's going to restore the world to the way it's supposed to be and he's saying that for you to participate in that world that you want is going to require a personal conversion that's the implication of verse 2. Look at verse 2. Why are you living this way? You should be living this way. And when he talks about the covenant of David in verse 3, he's saying that if you're really going to benefit from the redemption that's offered here, your life has to be attached to the life of God, to the covenant of David, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. And that's the only way you're going to participate and enjoy what the servant has done. You have to have a personal conversion. Your life has to be attached to God. And the moment you say that, everybody's antennas go up, right? You start talking about personal conversion. There's an allergic reaction that happens in a lot of people. I've heard people say things that, this is exactly what I don't like about Christianity. You're always trying to convert people. You're always trying to make people and believe what you believe and be like you and the only way that they can experience joy and happiness and salvation is just to become like you are. I've heard people say that Christianity is just a power play and seeking to try and control people. It's kind of narrow and intolerant and it's exclusive and it just feeds on people's fear and guilt and shame. Anybody heard things like that? All over the place. We've seen that prominently in our own city over the past week. And that may be true of some people's experience of evangelism, of an invitation 
to conform your life to the life of Jesus. But I want you to consider this morning that that's not what this invitation is. That's not the invitation that the Bible offers to you. That instead of empowering control, this invitation is compassionate. That instead of exclusive, it's universal. That instead of playing on your emotional fears and shame and anxiety, it's actually insightful. And it actually delivers. So I just want us to look at those four things this morning. This invitation is compassionate, it's universal, it's insightful, and it's satisfying. Look with me in verse one. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Four times the word is used, come. That's a Hebrew word that actually means to draw out sympathy, to draw out compassion, to get the attention of these people so that they know that the person who's speaking to them is good. He's coming for their well-being. He has good news to bring because if you're going to accept an invitation to somebody's feast, you want to know what their motivations are, right? You don't want to be sitting across the table from Hannibal Lecter. You don't. You want to be sitting across the table from someone who's good and has your best interest in mind. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way. He says, this particular invitation in Isaiah 55 is unsurpassed for the warmth of welcome, even of any welcome you might find in the New Testament. This is the most compassionate, warm invitation to a personal conversion that I think you can find in the Bible. The servant's motive here isn't a power play. It's not to try and control you. Because the verses we read and the liturgy we read together, the songs we sung, they all remind us that God is unsurpassed in his love for his people. And when we do that liturgy, the call to worship, the confession, the assurance of pardon, the passing of the peace, we're reminding ourselves that God is the creator. He's by definition got all the power. He's got all the control. He doesn't need to control you. He's got it all already. And if it's true, if it's true that he is good and that he loves and that he is beauty and justice and mercy, then perhaps his invitation to you isn't so that he can micromanage you and control you or exploit your weakness. He's not come to exploit you, Isaiah says. He's come to heal you. My son, a couple Months ago, we went on vacation to Colorado, which is one of my favorite places in the world. But day one, but day zero, before we even got to Colorado, because if you're going on a vacation with your family, the car ride is day zero. Vacation has not started. Uh, had a, he, we, so we get there, we're in Colorado, and we're just hoping he's not as sick as we think he is because he sounds like he is in the back. And we get there, and it's like, man, we got to take him to urgent care, day one. Got a pretty severe case of strep throat. Uh, and my mom is in the back just going, I told you to take him to the doctor three days ago. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Love you, mom. So we're at the urgent care. We're at the urgent care getting an antibiotic, and the, and the great thing now is that antibiotics are delicious. They taste good. They taste like candy. They look like candy. They're pink, uh, and they even smell good. Uh, I tried some for myself to, just to make sure, just to make sure. Uh, so Saul's just like sucking it down 10 days right morning 
and evening. He's waking up. He's reminding me, hey, Dad, you got my medicine? I'm like, this is vacation, dude. Like, chill. I know you're sick. Uh, But uh, essentially, he's a drug addict at this point, literally a drug addict at this point. He's addicted to the antibiotic. So I'm like, no, Saul, uh, it's been 10 days. You can't keep taking the medicine. It's we're done. And so he's upset, right? (laughs) He's mad. I'm sure he's thinking in his little kid brain, this is I'm sick. I'm only this tall. He's stronger than me. This is just a will to power. Like, this is him just trying to put his thumb on me, trying to control me. You're trying to exploit my weakness, Dad. I'm sick. Why don't you give me what I want? And as parents, we know that this isn't the case. That's not true. Even bad parents are motivated by compassion when their parents or when their kids are sick. I wasn't there to exploit his weakness. I wanted him to get well and to stay well. So I didn't just give him whatever he wanted. So When we come to Isaiah 55, we should consider that the servant is calling us to come into the presence of God, not because he wants to exploit our weakness in some sort of power move, but it's a compassionate call because he sees something in you that you need, and he's come to heal it. It's a compassionate invitation, but it's also a universal invitation. It's the second thing. Again, in verse 1, everyone's thirsty. Everyone is spiritually thirsty. When the passage says, come all you who are thirsty, that's like an invitation of a mom who's, let's say she's in Colorado on vacation with her her family and they're at the campsite and they've just hiked eight miles that day and she's at the fire. She knows you're hungry. But she says, what does she say? If you're hungry, come and eat. It's assumed that all human beings are spiritually hungry, spiritually thirsty. Mom knows you're hungry, but she says, if you're hungry, come. That's the same attitude that the servant here in Isaiah 55 says, because he knows that God has built spiritual hunger into the heart of every human being, whether you recognize it or not. Every, I mean, just almost every artist in our culture has something of a hit or a quote that's related to your spiritual hunger and theirs, right? Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. Rolling Stone magazine said that that's the number two greatest song of all time. Isn't that ironic? They can't even get the satisfaction of being number one. (laughs) Um, Bruce Springsteen, everyone's got a hungry heart. Bono, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jim Carrey's famous for saying something to the effect, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and make as much money as they could and had everything they ever wanted so that they could find out that it's not the answer. Every person in every culture seeks fulfillment. They seek hope. They seek meaning and security. They, they want to live with purpose. They want to live with a heart that's at rest. Everybody seeks life and happiness. And that's not just a spiritual thing. That's because God made you human. In his image, God hardwired you with a desire for him. And he did it because his purpose was that he wanted you to live for his glory because he knows that when you live for his glory, you're going to find your deepest happiness. Everyone is spiritually hungry by design. And there's two things about this universal invitation to everyone because we're all hungry. Is that One, it's a grace because that hunger is meant to draw you to God. When you're hungry, before you get hangry, you turn 
to food, right? In your better moments, and you enjoy it. God created you to enjoy him. But that hunger is also a danger, right? Because you can get hangry. In a fallen world, we're tempted to satisfy the hunger somewhere outside of the creator and feed on things that will never satisfy. You were spiritually hungry this week, and somehow, some way, you fed that hunger. That's 100% true. Universal truth. You were spiritually hungry this week, and somehow, some way, you fed that hunger. So we've all got to ask ourselves how am I feeding my hunger? Do I, am I able to name my thirst? This invitation is compassionate and it's universal. It includes all of us. Thirdly, it's insightful. Look there in verse two. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What's Isaiah doing here? He, he's, he's sort of hitting the pause button and he's saying, stop and think. Stop and think. See, the idea of trying to convert people to Christianity isn't divorced from reason or rationality. It's not just an emotional plea to try and exploit you and your anxieties. It's saying that perhaps this servant in Isaiah 55 has insight into your condition that you haven't picked up on yet. Stop and think. Maybe Jesus knows something about you that you haven't quite plumbed yet. What he's doing here is he's showing us that this invitation of grace is beautiful and it's glorious and it's free. But there's a competing offer, right? There's a competing invitation. It's food that cannot satisfy. And the rhetorical question he's asking is, why would you eat a meal that you know wouldn't fill you? If your mom or your dad or whoever you're with made you breakfast and they said, I, I want you to know that when you eat this breakfast, it's going to leave you empty. Would you eat it? Would you eat it if mom laid out 10 of those breakfasts? You're, you're hungry. She says, I've laid out all of this, 10 of them. Would you eat it? No, of course not. 10 times zero is what? Zero. It ain't going to satisfy. But we all do every day. It's addictive. It's why so many are being devoured by porn. It's why so many are glued to their phones, trying so hard to earn approval to get likes. It's important to get likes. That's me too. It's all of us in every way, shape, or form every day. I'd venture to say that every problem you had this week could be boiled down to the insight that the servant has in Isaiah 55 when he says, why spend money on that which is not bread? And why labor on what does not satisfy? You see, the lie of the garden is a dangerous lie, but it is seductive. That somehow, some way, your life can be found outside of your creator. That somehow you can go on and find satisfaction apart from God. Something that will fill your empty heart. We're tempted to listen to the lie. 
If you could honestly say today to yourself, if I only had blank, my life would be blank. What would you fill in? If I only had this, my life would be this. Perhaps it's possessions. You think maybe, maybe if I acquire enough things, my heart is going to find rest. Maybe it's achievement. If I can just accomplish this, I'm going to find satisfaction. Maybe it's a relationship. If I could only get that person to love me, to desire me, maybe then my soul would have peace. But it's, it's all a lie because the creation, Isaiah says, has no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart. It can't. I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier. I'm going to do it again. He said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. The invitation is compassionate, it's universal, it's insightful, and lastly, it's satisfying. This invitation satisfies our deepest longing. Look at verse 3. It says, Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may, what? Live. This is perfectly illustrated for us in the life of Jesus in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman by a well. It's a hot day. They're obviously in the Middle East. It's hot. You want some water. And he offers to give her living water. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the water in the well that they were sitting by. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I, I venture to think you, you know this story well. I know this story well. But what struck me so deeply this week was that what Jesus does after she responds to his uh, invitation to living water, she says, Jesus, give me this water so that I may not thirst. But Jesus doesn't give it to her right away. What does he do? He goes straight for her brokenness, Right? My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, and they've hewn for themselves broken wells that can hold no water. So here's Jesus sitting at a well. She's thirsty. He says, I can give you living water. She says, I want that. And he doesn't give it to her, but he goes for the broken part. He says, go call your husband and come back. Jesus knows this woman doesn't have a husband. Jesus knows this woman's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now isn't her husband. Jesus is saying to this woman, you want to stop trying to quench your thirst with things that are never going to satisfy? If you want this eternal life, then it starts with being seen. It starts with the truth, the naked truth of your brokenness and your sin. You have heard it said that water finds its lowest point. Anybody have a basement? 
find water in your basement, water's going to find the lowest point. Living water finds your soul's lowest point. It flows to your soul's deepest wound. The thing that you spend so much time trying to cover up and, and pretty over and heal on your own through yoga and food and success and sex and there's a million ways we try and do it. But living water that Jesus offers goes all the way down to the lowest point because that's where you need grace. That's where you need it most. And this woman let it sink down deep into her life. And her life was changed forever. Listen to me, Isaiah says. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Literally incline your ear. Literally lean in with your whole body and listen. Come as close as you can and hear this word. And there's two words in this passage that we have to believe. What's the word that Isaiah wants us to hear so that we may live? One is that we're the problem. And two is that he's the solution. See, he says you're laboring or doing all of that stuff to fulfill the hunger and meaning in your life. Jesus says it's not just foolishness when you do that. It is foolish, but it's not just foolishness. It's rebellion. It's sin. It's spiritual pride. It's usurping God's place as creator in which you think you know better than him how to run your life. Romans chapter 1 says it's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Isaiah, in this very chapter in verse 8, says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. But we flip that, and we pretend that our ways are higher than God's ways, and our thoughts are higher than his thoughts. And so we need to own that. We need to repent and come with all of our spiritual poverty and say, we got no money. I'm thirsty, but I got no money. I'm going to bring everything I have, which is my need, and I'm going to lay it at your feet, and I'm going to trust Jesus to pardon me freely. That's the first thing. Second thing is that Jesus is the solution. Notice the phrase in verse 1. It's, it's an odd thing to say. He says, come to the waters, everyone who thirsts. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. How can someone who has no money buy something? It's, it's a weird phrase, but how do you buy something without money. And I think the implication is that it's free to you, but it wasn't to God. Somebody paid for it, and Jesus already purchased it for you. Jesus paid the ransom, the scriptures say, to set you free from the curse of sin's tyranny we sang about. On the cross, we read that Jesus cried, I thirst. And it's in that moment where he's forsaken by God. He's cut off from the real source of joy and satisfaction that we're to be reminded that God says of us, you've done two things. You've forsaken me and hewn for yourself wells that have no ability to hold water. And Jesus on the cross says to God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that he could offer you and I living water. Jesus also says in another place in John's gospel, that he's the bread of life. Think about what that means. If you're going to benefit physically from bread, if you're going to enjoy bread, I enjoy bread. Fazoli's, you been there? It's the jam. 
all-you-can-eat bread. It don't get better than Fazoli's. Don't even lie to me. Texas Roadhouse is close. Uh, Red Lobster is good, too. Bread. If you're going to benefit from Fazoli's, what do you got to do? You got to break it. You got to break bread if you're going to eat it and benefit from it. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. What he's saying is that the only way you're going to benefit spiritually is if my body's broken. And you have to take it in. You have to take me in. I'm going to allow my body to be broken so that you can live forever. Jesus says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Eleven years ago, Jess and I were living in this rental house that we had no business living in. Um, not because it was a nice rental house, but because it was way too stinking cold. It was an old house. It was over 100 years old, had no insulation. Uh, I don't even know where the furnace was or uh, how new it was. Basically, we had moved there right around this time of year. Um, we were living in an apartment complex. We were excited. We moved into this new house, and it was wintertime. Wintertime came around. We couldn't afford to keep the heat on because we were poor and had no money, and, and the utilities were insane. Uh, and we were also stupid, so we turned the heater off. And uh, we would wake up uh, in the morning, huddled in our hoodies and thermals on, sock, multiple pairs of socks, space heater on, uh, in our bedroom with the door shut so it could stay somewhat warm. We'd wake up in the morning. The temperature would be 45 degrees inside the house. And so what we'd do is we'd literally run to the shower. I'm serious. Liter not safe when, like, tile floors that are cold and stuff. But you would run to the shower, flip the shower on, hot water coming eventually. It takes a while. Hot water. But while it was taken, you would get your clothes that you had for that day that you were going to wear. You'd throw them in the dryer. You'd turn it on and get it tumbling. So you could take a hot shower. And as soon as you were done with the hot shower, you'd run over to the dryer. You'd pull it out. And your clothes would be warm. And you'd put them on. It's a true story. Jessica has a scar from a rivet uh, from one of the jeans that got too hot. She put on it like branded her, uh, <laughs> like Levi's, uh, right there. It's a ridiculous process. That's a true story. Uh, you can ask her about it. But it's a, ridiculous, it's a ridiculous mental image, isn't it? It's even, just even recounting it out loud is just so absurd. It makes you wonder, why did you ever live that way? That's foolishness. Now we live in a house with a fireplace. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? Fireplace. Just makes you happy. If we want to get warm, now we don't have to go through that ridiculous process. We don't have to throw our clothes in the dryer. We don't have to stay in the shower and hope to never get out. Uh, that's a nightmarish ritual. That's a nightmarish way to live. Now we can just go stand by the fire. If you stand next to the fire long enough, it's not just your clothes that get warm, like in the dryer. If you stand next to a fire long enough, your bones get warm. The inside gets warm. The same is true with happiness. If you want joy, and if you want satisfaction, if you want happiness, you've got to get close to the thing that has them. You've got to get that thing inside you. You've got to come to Jesus, Isaiah says. You've got to lean into him. You've got to take his life into yours. The invitation stands. It's compassionate. 
It's universal. It's insightful. And it actually delivers. Let me pray.